Amen. You may be seated. If you would, turn with me or find with me in your copy of God's Word uh, this morning, the ninth chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of this uh, chapter together this morning as we enter into this second week of Advent and we think about the coming of Messiah, the anticipation that the saints of the Old Testament had of this one who was to come and conquer uh, sin and death. Uh, and we share in that same anticipation in our day, knowing full well that Messiah has come, that he has conquered the grave by his death on the cross and his resurrection. Uh, but we still live with that same sense of anticipation, that same longing for the coming of Messiah as we know he is coming Again, and so as we enter into this Advent season and this Christmas season, we are mindful of this truth, and we want to consider that together over the next several weeks as we uh, think about this Advent season and consider it from the pages of Scripture. So we'll do that uh, today by beginning here in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, it's interesting in the world that we live in today to hear from a, a secular world uh, and people who are not necessarily followers of Christ or even believe in the incarnation that God became flesh that we celebrate at Christmas to hear their fascination this time of year with peace. Uh, I heard a, a young man interviewed on a, a news station this week uh, and he was asked, what, what do you want this Christmas? And he said, peace on earth. Uh, the, the secular songs and movies that emphasize the, the desire that we have for peace in the world, even for non-Christians, even for this, this lost and dying world around us, to recognize that speaks to the reality of the lack of peace that exists in our world, the, the conflict that exists around us because of sin. We think about this year in 2023, um, the conflict that has arisen over the last several weeks and months in the Middle East that is still unfolding before our eyes, a conflict that has been raging on for really all of human history. And, and people on the news, experts, college professors coming on, and the, and the newscaster asks them, what do we need to do to find peace in the Middle East? There is a call for peace even in our day. Interestingly, the context, the setting in which Isaiah chapter 9 is written is in the midst of a conflict that is happening in Isaiah's day or will happen in Isaiah's day there in what we know today and call Palestine. Again, a piece of land, a portion of land that has found itself under conflict throughout all of human history reminds us today that there is a fallen world that surrounds us and we are in desperate need of peace. And so as we consider these seven verses, I want us to have in our minds this morning what Jesus speaks of in John chapter 16, verse 33, where he says to us, in the world you will have trouble, but in him and him alone we find a peace that overcomes the world. This is at the heart of what we are going to see here in these seven verses in Isaiah. So if you would follow along with me as we read together here in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the inheritance of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. The book of Isaiah is a vast and profound book. You could spend an entire lifetime studying the verses that are found in the 66 books that make up the book of Isaiah. And at the center of these 66 books is a theme that runs throughout its verses, throughout its chapters, that God does all things for his glory. In fact, commentators and pastors and theologians have all really agreed that Isaiah 48 verse 11 is, is the theme verse of all of Isaiah, where it says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And at the center, center of this book, in, in the midst of this theme, that God does all things for his glory, there is a conflict that is happening uh, in the nation of Israel. And on the surface, it seems that the conflict is simply a conflict that exists between Israel and other nations. And this is certainly part of the conflict. In fact, we see that here as the setting of verse 9. There's this conflict that is going to unfold in Israel. And if you look at verse 22 of chapter 8, it says this, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness... The gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust in to darkness. These words, distress, darkness, gloom of ang anguish, thick darkness, is the setting that we have here for verse 9. And so in order to understand what this distress and darkness is, we need to go back all the way to King David and consider how the nation of Israel has come to this point. King David is the one that we saw there at the very end of Ruth last week in Ruth chapter 4, who comes from Ruth and Boaz. And under King David, the nation of Israel is at its height. Uh, when David reigns over Israel, it is the most powerful nation in all of the world, this tiny little nation that God blesses under his leadership. And yet, because of the sin of David and the sin of his son Solomon and the sin of their sons, after David's reign, the nation of Israel begins this decline that will continue on until Messiah comes. 
And so at that point, when David dies, the nation is split into two kingdoms. You have Israel in the north, and you have Judah in the south. And so this crucial piece of land that is still a, a, a source of conflict in our day, this land bridge that connects Africa with Asia and Europe, becomes this place of great strife and conflict. And so after David's reign, you have people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians trying to lay claim to this important piece of land. And so after David's reign, you find the nation of Israel longing for the golden age of King David's reign. But this golden age would never come again to the nation of Israel. So we come to the context of chapter 9 of Isaiah, which is chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Isaiah gives a prophecy. He says that the Assyrians are going to come and invade the northern portion of the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom that we know as Israel, and more specifically, what we call Galilee. So if you look at verse 1, he mentions the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, beyond the Jordan. He has in mind this northern portion of the nation of Israel, which we call Galilee. Why is this important? Well, Galilee, we know from the New Testament, was a, was a place that was despised by the Jews at large. They really looked down upon the, the, the region of Galilee. Uh, I was uh, born in, in, in South Dakota, but have lived in Texas all my life, but never in Houston. And my family told me, and I don't want to offend any people from Houston this morning, that Houston is the armpit of Texas. Uh, you can come talk to me afterwards. Uh, Galilee was the armpit of Israel. It was this mixture of different nations and, and different tribes and people there. And so it was looked down upon by the nation of Israel at large. And so when these invaders would come, they would usually invade the northern port, portion, Galilee. So this is why in the history of Israel, Israel, the kingdom of Israel, falls first. And then Judah falls later to the Babylonians. And so this is a snapshot of what is happening here in the day of Isaiah. This conflict that is coming and has been existing among Israel and the nations. But again, at the surface, this is what the conflict seems to be limited to. But really, when we dive into the verses of Isaiah and the book of Isaiah, we see that there's a greater conflict that is happening here. And that is a conflict between the nation of Israel and with God. The nation of Israel is, is faced with this question that they have really been faced with throughout their history. Will they follow Yahweh or will they follow the ways of men? This is true in the, in the days when the kings reigned. This is true when the judges reigned. As we saw in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 that the, the reason that that season and that time when the judges reigned was so dark was because the people were seeking their own way and their own will. And so this is the conflict that is the center of Isaiah. And so the setting for us here is that this nation of Israel and the harsh reality that is presented to us before the pages of Scripture is that as a whole, throughout their history, Israel would choose time and time again to follow after the ways of men. And so we see verse 22 of chapter 8, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, this thick darkness. The, the writer re-emphasizes this in verse 2 of chapter 9 when he says the people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. The word that's used there in the Hebrew in verse 2 is a word, are words that are familiar to us from Psalm 23, which is the shadow of death. This is the setting of Isaiah 9. 
The people of God are not just passing through the shadow of death. They are living in the midst of the shadow of death. Deep darkness. Great conflict that surrounds them. And yet, chapter 9 is full of hope. Why? Because out of this great darkness will come a great light. This people, this nation who is doing things in their own power and failing miserably, there is hope for them in this light that is to come. And this light is the Messiah. It is Christ himself. Something we need to understand about the book of Isaiah and these words that are written here, they were written some 700 years before Christ comes to this earth. The, the book of Isaiah, of all of the Old Testament books that are cited in the New Testament, is the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, and rightfully so, because there's a lot of prophecy here about the Messiah. Sometimes when we think about prophecy in the Old Testament, we think that all the prophets are doing are, are telling about things that are going to happen in the future. And that's not always the case. In fact, much of what the, the, the prophets are writing about is just the judgment of God that's going to come on the people. We most certainly see prophecy of things that are, that are to come. But only 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic, prophecy that points to the Messiah, Christ who is to come. And this passage that we've read this morning is most certainly one of those passages. We, it's easy for us to see there in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is that covenantal language that we have seen all year long, walking through Genesis, walking through Ruth, the promise of the seed who would come and crush the head of the serpent there in the garden. The one who was promised to Eve, the, the, the seed who was promised to Abraham and to Sarah, the seed that comes from Ruth and Boaz, the seed that comes from the line of David. This child will be born and he will bring peace to not just the nation of Israel, but to all the world. And so in the chaos, in the conflict that surrounds them, Isaiah says this, Christ will come. And we see this just on, uh, in the words that are used in, in chapter 9, the, the, the comparison between this darkness, but what is to come in Christ. Just listen to some of the words that are used here in these verses. Gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness, burden, oppressor, tumult. But Christ comes, and what does he bring? He brings light and joy. The word rejoice is used, glad and peace. So Christ comes, and he turns our darkness into light. He turns our contempt into rejoicing. He turns our burden into gladness. This is what he does. Notice here all of the things that he does here in the passage. He turns their shame into glory. We, we talked about Galilee here and, and, and how they were looked down upon in the nation of Israel. But what is spoken of here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 9 is very important because Jesus, when he comes to this earth, where is the first place that he goes in his ministry? He goes to the armpit of Israel. He goes to Galilee. He goes to the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. In fact, I want you to see this with me. Hold your place there in Isaiah this is so profound. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Matthew speaks of this prophecy that Isaiah makes here in Isaiah chapter 9, and he makes it quite clear for us. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Now when he heard that John, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Christ comes, and who does he go to first? He goes to this land of darkness, this people that represented shame in the nation of Israel. Their shame is turned to glory. He takes their sorrow and he turns it to joy. You see it there in verse 3. Not only does he multiply them numerically, but he multiplies their rejoicing and their joy. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So he turns their shame into glory. He turns their sorrow into joy. And then we're told in verse 6 that the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will bear the office of king perfectly. Whoever you think in your mind is the greatest U.S. president ever to exist or, or the greatest king or greatest sovereign ever to exist in world history, that one can barely even scratch the surface of the perfection of Christ's kingship. He is the perfect king. Notice the names that he gives to this child who is to be born. He will be called first Wonderful Counselor. That word counselor in the Hebrew speaks to the king's most trusted advisor. Who is the one that the king goes to time and time again to seek wise counsel? Christ as king needs no such counselor. He is his own counsel because he is wisdom incarnate. He is the word made flesh. He is his own perfect counselor. Always doing what is right and best for his people. He's wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. This God-man who reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, who establishes his throne on the throne of David, as you see there in verse 7, to establish it and uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness. He reigns supreme. He's called their everlasting father. There's a couple things that we can take from this title that's given to him. First, he would put the needs of his children, his people, first as a good and perfect father would. But also this word father... Uh, can mean author. And so he is God in flesh, the author of all that was and is and is to come. And his kingdom is everlasting. You see it also there in verse 7 that his kingdom, well, there will be no end. From this time forth and forevermore, when Christ establishes his kingdom, it will be an eternal one. The final name that's given to him there in verse 6 is Prince of Peace. And this is where I want us to spend the rest of our time. Because as we consider the conflict that surrounds Israel, that word peace is the antithesis to all of that conflict that they face. He is the Prince of Peace. As he says there at the beginning of verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Just as there was conflict in Isaiah's day, so too is there conflict in the world that we live in today. There's a conflict that exists between people. 
In Psalm 120, verse 7, God said this, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I can kind of sympathize with what God is saying here. In my home as a father, I think to myself, man, I'm just about peace in this house. My kids, on the other hand, they seem to be about war. We feel the conflict in our homes. We feel it in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our nations. Nations rising against nations. There's a conflict that exists between people in our world. There's also a conflict that exists between people and nature as well. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is on a boat there with the disciples. And this great storm comes up. And and Jesus is doing what on the boat? He's sleeping And the disciples come to him and they say, do you not care for our well-being? And Jesus awakes and he goes to the edge of the boat. And what does he say to the storm and the waves? He says, peace, be still. It goes on to say there in verse 39 of Mark chapter 4, And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The voice of Christ, the same voice that the waves knew because he called them into existence at creation, stood still at the command of his name, peace be still. This conflict that we see with nature against us, tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes that threaten our well-being. Disease, cancer, dementia, arthritis, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, death itself. There's a conflict that exists between man and nature. There's also a conflict that exists within ourselves. In in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christ offers us peace, but what is our constant struggle? It's a struggle within where our hearts and our minds are led to be troubled and to fear. We are prone to wander. We are prone to anxiety and fear and depression and doubt and discouragement. This conflict conflict exists between people. It exists between men and nature. It exists within ourselves. And yet, in all three of these verses that I just read to emphasize these three types of conflict that we see, what was the one theme throughout that Christ offers us? Peace. Peace in the midst of conflict. I want us to consider just for a moment Philippians chapter 4, verses that we are very familiar with, that we go to quite often, verses 6 and 7. And here Paul says this, Do not be what? Anxious about anything. And so we sense the conflict that is within us to be fearful and anxious, but he says replace it with what? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Take those anxious and fearful thoughts captive and present them in trust to the sovereign hand of God. And what does he say will come to you in verse 7? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we have this hope that as the world around us is in chaos, and as there is from time to time an internal conflict within us, there is a peace to be found in Christ that this world cannot even begin to fathom. And so if we are to define the word peace by just simply doing a word study of the of the Bible, we would say this, peace is a freedom from conflict. Most importantly, though, true peace can only come when we have freedom from the conflict that we have with God. And this is the root of the problem. 
This is the heart of the problem, of the conflict that we see in the world around us in our day and have seen throughout all of human history. The reason that we have conflict with each other and conflict with nature and conflict within ourselves is because we have a conflict with God. A conflict that we see at the very beginning of the Bible in the garden Where we started off this year as a church in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree that is in the center of the garden. And the serpent comes along and he says, what? If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. And Adam and Eve, they eat of of the tree. They disobey this one law that God gave to them. Why? Because they wanted to be like God. This is the heart issue. This is the root of conflict. The same attitude that we saw in Mr. So-and-so last week in Ruth chapter 4. What's in it for me? And sin enters into the world and breaks all that God created. And notice what the outworking is of their disobedience there in Genesis chapter 3. There's a conflict with self. What do they realize right away after they eat of the tree? They realize that they are naked and they feel ashamed and so they have to cover themselves up. There's a conflict that comes out of that with nature where the woman now has birth pains and the man will have to labor by the sweat of his brow all of his days and the the snake will threaten to strike the foot of the woman. A conflict with self, a conflict with nature, but also a conflict with each other that comes out of their disobedience. What does Adam say there in Genesis chapter 3? The woman that you put here with me made me do it. Conflict. And then Genesis 4, what happens right away? They have two sons and Cain kills his brother Abel. The world is full of conflict because of sin. Sin has entered the world. Sin has broken creation. And the resolution to this conflict, to this problem, is peace with so the question before us then is, how do we have this peace? Well, this, that's what Isaiah chapter 9 is all about. A, a child king who would come, who's mighty God, the prince of peace. His kingdom of peace will have no end. He will establish his throne, the throne of David, forever. And it is by his justice and his righteousness that is displayed at the cross that he will do it. There at the cross, the righteous judgment of God is put on full display as Christ takes on the penalty of sin and death upon himself in our place. And he accomplishes peace by the work of the cross. I want us to go to one final place, Isaiah 53. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. And I want us to answer the question, how does Christ do it? How does he bring us peace? We we could go to the New Testament. We could find the answer to these questions there in the New Testament. But I want us to sit here for a moment and rest in the prophet Isaiah who wrote these words 700 years before Messiah would come. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So how does Christ bring peace? Again, we could go to the New Testament, but I want us to see what this Old Testament prophet has to say. So if you're taking notes, five things as we close. What does Christ do to bring us peace first? He lived a sinless life. You see it there in verse 9. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He lived a sinless life, although we were the complete opposite. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one, to his own way. All of us are full of sin and rebellion against God, and yet Christ comes and he lives a sinless life. Second, the text tells us he suffered and died. Look at verses 4 and 5. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Like a lamb sent to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So he lived a sinless life. He suffered and died. But thirdly, he did it according to the will of the Father. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The death of Christ on the cross was the purposeful plan of God. It was not plan B. The plan of redemption is one that is unfolding before creation of time and space. There is no other way for us to find peace with God. We cannot have peace with God in and of ourselves. He must intervene on our behalf, and he has done so by the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. So he lived a sinless life, he suffered and died, he did it according to the perfect will of the Father, but fourthly, he suffered for who? He suffered for us. Verse 4, he has borne our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, verse 5, our iniquities. With his wounds, we are healed. The end of verse 6, the iniquity of us all he comes and he suffers and dies for us and then what is the result the fifth thing we see here the result is peace with god verse 5 but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed it's by the wounds of christ the blood of christ that the conflict that surrounds us is resolved And so as we close this morning, I want you to consider this. Are you living in the valley of the shadow of death today? Are you maybe passing through the valley of the shadow of death today? 
If you're in Christ today, know this. There is a peace that you have in Christ that surpasses all understanding. No matter what you are facing today or will face in the future, rest in the hope of who Christ is and what he has done to conquer sin and death. And as the world around you crumbles, dear friends, you will find a peace that this world cannot comprehend. Rest in that. But finally today, if you have never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, You've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You've never put your faith in these five things that Isaiah 53 tells us, that Jesus lived a sinless life, he suffered and died in our place, and he did it according to the will of the Father. If you've never believed in him and turned from your sin, today is the day of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe that he has come and he has done these things and he has conquered sin and death. And when you believe in him and you turn from his sin, the chaos that is set against you and the conflict that is set against you with this creator God of the universe is no longer set upon you because Christ takes that upon himself in your place. And there is hope and there is life and there is peace to be found in him today. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Believe in him today. Let's pray.